How's everyone this morning? Good. Praise the Lord. This morning, uh, if you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. That's where we're going to be reading this morning. Um, Some of you might be thinking, what happened to chapter 3? (laughs) Well, um, we are going to be in chapter 3 a little bit today, but uh, as this is my last week uh, to preach on 1 John until Pastor Strope uh, comes back and is preaching, um, as I was looking through chapter 3, I realized that I'd already preached through most of chapter 3 while I was preaching through the other two chapters. And um, I really think this passage in chapter 5 is going to bring together a lot of the other truths that we learned from the first two chapters and the third chapter of 1 John. So uh, if you're with me in 1 John chapter 5, we'll be starting in verse 11 and reading to the end of the chapter. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything, According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask, we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that He should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you this morning and we study your word, uh, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the truths that are inside. Pray that you would keep us pure. Um, We confess any sins that uh, we've committed and that are perhaps uh, creating separation between us and you this morning. We pray that you you would be working fully and unimpeded in our hearts as we study your word. We pray that you would give us wisdom and guidance and uh, proper application of your holy scriptures. And Lord, we do thank you uh, for, although there are some of us that are sick this morning, there are many of us here who can fellowship uh, joyfully and fully 
in you. We pray for those who are sick. Um, you would give them strength. Uh, encourage their hearts this morning. Pray that they would be safe. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I was thinking about some of the past sermons I preached. And uh, I was considering that perhaps there's a scenario that came up in your mind um, concerning a dispute that you have with a brother and sister in Christ in which you really genuinely do all that you can think to do to honor and glorify God. You do everything within your power to um, confess your sin to them, to be a testimony, to be a witness. Um, but that individual uh, remains in sin and is not interested in the unification of that relationship. And perhaps you thought, well, what do you really do in that scenario? Because a relationship is dependent on two, diff- two people. And our relationship with God is such that primarily that depends on us. Because God is holy and perfect and does not need to confess anything. If there is separation between us and God, it is that we separated from God, not that He from us separated Himself. So, what do you do with an individual who is a sinner and is unrepentant? Well, hopefully we will address that this morning in our passage um, if you will turn to me, and we will start in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And His life is in His Son. This, uh, I was thinking about this while we were singing our first song, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Um, one of the verses is, Crown Him the Lord of Life. And we know from 1 John chapter 1 that He is the Word of Life that appeared. And it said, the life was manifested and we have seen and we bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus is life. Uh, He conquered death on the cross and lives eternally and offers us that same life. What life is it referring to? Is it referring to physical life? Well, first we've got to determine what exactly is the difference between physical life and spiritual life? I would argue that life is unity. Death is separation. Life, physical life, is the unity between the physical body and the soul, spirit. When you die, your soul, spirit, separates from your physical body in death. When we die spiritually, we are separated from God. We do not have fellowship, communion, unity with God in spiritual death. And Romans speaks very much to this point, and um, we know that we have been reborn. We've been given newness of life. We know that That life is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. So he who 
has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. What is he saying here? Many, many times in the past chapters, we've seen him speaking to these individuals and reassuring them that he knows that they're saved. He knows that they're believers. We see this in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, verses 12 through 14, verse 21, and 3, 2 through 5. Repeatedly, he nails down the idea that they are believers. And why does he need to do that? Because he's describing to them a believer in chapter 1 who has walked away from God, who's walking in darkness, not in light. And he doesn't want them to have the impression that they have lost their salvation. He instead wants them to be reunited with Jesus Christ and with God the Father and with the believers. And so he reassures them once again in verse 13 and chapter 5 that he's writing these things not because they don't know the truth but because they do know the truth. He's writing to them because they do believe and they have been forgiven on account of the name of the Son of God. He writes these things to them but that they may know that they have eternal life. And that they may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The continuing is that idea that's constantly repeated in this book of, of walking, abiding, dwelling, persisting, continuing. He doesn't want them to falter. Verses 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Now, is this true regarding a believer who walks in darkness? No. So don't have the idea in your mind that you can ask anything of God at any time, and if He doesn't give it to you, then He's a liar. Because it says very specifically, according to his will, he hears us. So what we need to do as believers is we need to learn what is according to God's will. What is his will? And then we need to pray according to his will and be answered. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Verse 16 says, If anyone sees a brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and God will give him life. For those who commit sin not leading to death, there is sin leading to death. 
I do not say that we should pray about that. This is a very difficult passage to think through. But if you would, please be patient with me as I try to explain it. First off, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that he, he's promised that if we ask anything according to his will, he will give it to us. And then immediately gives us a command. And I would argue that that command, whatever it be, is according to his will. Because why would God command you to do something contrary to his will? And especially with the closeness that we have in, in just first, <clears throat> verse 15 and then verse 16, the correlation here, I think you can't separate them. You have to think of them as one united idea. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, well, you'll say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Doesn't all sin lead to death? Isn't that the point? Not necessarily. Think for a moment who he's referring to. If anyone sees his brother sinning, this is a saved individual. This is not an unbeliever. If anyone sees a brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, do we, as believers... Remember, this is, I believe, spiritual death, not physical death. Do we as believers sin sins, and do we ultimately die eternally? No, we don't. Chapter 1 is very clear about this. Chapter 1, verses 6, 8, and 10 say that, essentially, if if you say that you have not sinned, you deceive yourself. You are a liar, and you make God out to be a liar. So we, we do sin. But our sin doesn't lead to death. But what does it lead to? It leads to lack of fellowship with God. It says, it, we will, he will ask, and God will give him life. And why does he need life if his sins don't lead to death? It's because life means unity. Jesus is life. And he does not have life if he is walking in darkness. He does not have unity if he's walking in darkness. It's like I mentioned before, we are light bearers. We're vessels of light. And though we may walk in darkness, our light is not snuffed out. But it's hidden. And so, what you might say is that he's not all dead. He's just mostly dead. He's not fully alive. He's not fully united in Christ. And so we'll ask, we'll ask God, we'll pray, and God will give him life. Do you understand what this means, folks? Do you understand the responsibility that we have as believers in regard to our fellow believers? What does this mean for those who are sinning? It means don't conceal your sin. We'll get to this idea more later. I'm going to try and pull it all together with verse 18. I do not say that he should pray that there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. 
what I want to share with you this morning is that this command, this, this what he's saying here, is it's not a prohibition. It's, it's a clarification. He's not saying don't pray about people who are unbelievers because those are the people whose sins do lead to death. He's not saying don't pray for unbelievers. But what he is saying is that I'm not talking about that right now. Right now, I am talking about the the thing which you can pray for, which is certainly according to the will of God, and it will be answered you. He will hear you. Now, this this is the crux of it. Because if you have a fellow believer, a friend, a brother in Christ... And there's disunity between you and them. And you have confessed your sins to God. And you've confessed your sins to them. And you have done everything which is within your power to unify yourself with God, with Jesus Christ, and with the believers. That means that the disunity that exists between you and them is a result of their lack of fellowship with God. And what it means, furthermore, is that your responsibility from there on is to pray for them. Pray for them. It doesn't say confront them, although at a certain point, I think that's, we can find biblically is an appropriate thing to do. But here, it's not saying that. Here, it's saying pray for them. Why? Because no matter how much you might think it, you as an individual cannot be persuasive enough to change people's hearts. You as an individual cannot be convincing enough that people will turn from their sin because of something you said. Your testimony will not be God-glorifying enough ever to change people's hearts. Those are certainly things that God can use. But they're not what change people's hearts. It's the Holy Spirit. And as we know, this is a believer. This is a brother who's sinning. And so the Holy Spirit of God resides in them. So petition the God of life to restore your brother or sister in Christ to life, to unity. He's the one who can do the work. But remember, you cannot make petitions of God and be heard if you're not walking in the light. If you don't have fellowship with God, will He hear you? No, He will not. So you need to check yourself. There's a lot of introspection that needs to be done. You have to think of your heart, your emotions, your soul, your will as a garden. And the garden needs to be weeded. And the weeds are the sins that, pro- that come up in your life. And if you, if you pluck off the top of the weed, it might look like your garden is weeded. But what happens within just a few hours, not even days? Those weeds come back up again. And they take even stronger root in your garden. So you have to pluck 
those weeds up from the roots. You have to be fully, completely submitted to God. In spite of the difficulty. In spite of the conflict that you have with your brother. In spite of their sin. Let's say that it's not even, it doesn't have to be a conflict with you and them. It can be an individual sin that they're struggling with personally. It could be something that they don't even tell you about. I think this is why Job, he, he sacrifices just in case his sons and his daughters sinned. He's so cautious that if there's even the possibility, if there's even the remotest chance that they sinned, he doesn't want them to fall out of fellowship with God. And that's how we have to be in our lives and in our hearts. If there's even the smallest, remotest possibility that something we did could have been of selfish ambition or deceit, if there was anything that we could have done that could have been even remotely proudful, that we submit that to God. We confess it immediately. Because it will come between you and God and it will come between you and other people. It will. And some of you might be thinking, or you've thought before, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I don't really, I don't really do that much. That's sinning. Read chapter 1 again. Especially verses 6, 8, and 10. Because we all sin. And if you are, if you're, you're, you're an example of verse 8, which says that we're deceiving ourselves if we say that we have not sinned. If, and I, I've had to do this where I've gone into a situation and I've prayed about it beforehand, but so quickly, so quickly can the, those sins take root in your heart. Even after you've prayed, even after you've asked God to give you wisdom to handle the situation. A, a little sprout of anger or a little sprout of pride or a little sprout of whatever sin will take hold and it will come between you and that other person. So be continually abiding. Be continually walking in the light. Not just at one point in time. Not just every week or every month. It's not a check mark. It's a way of living. It's something you have to constantly do. Um, So verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Once again, keeping in mind chapter 1, it's not that they never sin, it's that they do not abide in sin. They do not abide in the darkness. But we who have been born of God He who has been born of God keeps himself. The reason why I have self in parentheses in your handout is because we have another textual variant. And so I want to talk briefly about the two different interpretations that can be here. One is that the believer, the one who has been born of God, is... Guarding is keeping watch over himself so that the wicked one cannot touch him. Well, 
if that's the case, then of course we need to guard ourselves. We know that whoever has been born of God does not sin. This seems to indicate that this is a believer who's not walking in darkness. So I'm not opposed to that idea. But if you look at it the other way, say, he who has been born of God keeps him safe, guards him. It seems to flow very seamlessly from the previous idea is that we are observing a brother in Christ. We, are, we who have been born of God view another who has been born of God. We see that he might be in sin and we pray. And how do we keep him safe? How do we keep ourselves safe from the evil one? Is it truly us that does it? No, it's not. Keeping in mind that we're asking, we're petitioning God for his intervention, for his involvement in the situation because he is mighty. He is powerful to save. He is capable of changing people's hearts. And the wicked one does not touch him. The word touch here uh, can be embrace. I don't know about any of you guys, but the Son of God should not be embracing the evil one. We should not embrace the things of this world. We should not be in close contact with that which is eternally and so drastically opposed to God. So our responsibility is to pray. And we know that God will, He will Hear us. Verse 18. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, This is the true God, the eternal life. I want to turn your attention quickly to Galatians chapter 6. If you turn with your Bibles there with me. Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, then he is nothing, and he deceives himself. If you see a brother in sin, don't become proud. Don't become arrogant in your walk. That, oh, so-and-so is at it again. 
me, I'm glad I'm not like them. Verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The nature of this verb is is plural. He's talking to a group. So there's three different ways that this can be taken. I'm going to use the southern language here, which is y'all. I, I've actually translated much of the New Test or much of the New Testament that I've translated. I've inserted the word y'all whenever it's the second person plural. Because there's a distinction. He's not just talking to one person. Y'all guard yourselves collectively from idols. So he's talking to the group and he's talking the group speaking the group was gonna keep themselves from idols as a group. Or, y'all, guard yourselves individually from idols. So there's, each individual is responsible for, each individual of the group is responsible for keeping themselves from idols, individually. Or three, y'all, guard yourselves collectively and individually from idols. And I prefer this way of looking at it. Because I think it's consistent with the, the previous verses. Where we have the believers responsible for keeping themselves. Guarding themselves. But also, I think, responsible for guarding each other. And how do, how do we know to guard each other? How, this is so much more than just fellowship with one brother to another brother. It's fellowship with one brother has fallen out of fellowship with God. And so we want to protect them. We, we live in a culture, I think, where it's, there's so much shame wrapped up in confessing your sin that you just keep it to yourself. And it dwells there for a long time. And no one knows but you. And we can put on a good face We can deceive everyone around us thinking that we're in fellowship with God. When in reality, we're not. When in reality, we have not abolished every idol in our life. And we are actually, I believe, we are removing their ability to be responsible Guarding us in the faith. If you take a look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24, I'll read it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where Neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And what he's saying is, choose, choose you this day who you will serve. Don't play a dual life. Don't, don't be wishy-washy in your faith. Don't be self-deceived and trying to self-deceive others into thinking that you are with God when in fact you're worshiping someone else. Don't do that. So, I want to talk briefly about how you might approach somebody who's in sin. Because this is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's not something that comes naturally, I think. Um, We know from Galatians chapter 6 that we're to do it with a spirit of gentleness. Not from pride. But how, how else could we do it? First things first, we need to be walking in the light. So if you need to, pray Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Or maybe you want to Change it up. Make it specific to your situation. God, I know I can be self-deceived, but I know that anything I have from you is not deception, but the truth. So search me out and reveal to me any wicked way that I might walk in your glorious light. Provide me with the spirit that is the potential that has the ability to work in this person's life. I don't want my heart to be the reason why they aren't ministered to. Don't let me further them from you. Let me be an instrument of your Holy Spirit to unify them with you. Let's turn back to First uh, John chapter 3 for just a second. Told you I'd get back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verses 19 through 22. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And knows all things. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, or whatever we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. The word condemn here is different than the word that is con- condemnation in, for example, uh, Chapter, uh, chapter 8 of Romans, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Romans 8, 1. That condemnation is katakrino. Kata meaning that which comes down. And krino 
judgment. The judgment of God comes down is literally what that word means. This, this word here is katagnosko. And gnosko is knowledge. And so, therefore, a lot, of, um, a lot of translators will translate the word heart as conscience here. And it bears the idea that God is working through our conscience that when we ask things from him, we might receive them. In other words, knowledge, when we, when we put our heart in the presence of God, keep that in mind, it says in verse 19, our hearts before him, we're in God's presence, we're in prayer. Lord, I come before you in your presence today and search me. Search my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, please reveal wickedness. I do not want to be separated from you, especially now. And in that time, submitted to God, he will reveal knowledge. He will give wisdom. I believe it with all my heart. It's according to the will of God. And he's promised he will do it. But you have to fully submit yourself. You have to be genuine. So in that moment with whoever it is you're, you're dealing with. If you need to. If God reveals something in your heart that you've done. Apologize. Be the first one. Don't wait. Don't say, well, they're, they're responsible for 90% of it. They're the ones that are doing so much of this is because of them. I may have done this 10%, but, but they're responsible for 90%. They should go first. No. That's not what a heart submitted to the, to the word of God would do. Repent for your 10% or for your 90%, whatever it is. Repent, apologize, be sincere. Know that people walking in darkness might be blinded by sin, but they can smell hypocrisy from a mile away. They can smell it. If there's an ounce of hypocrisy in what you're saying, you will render everything you're doing ineffective. They will forget your spirit-controlled heart and focus in on the little sin that you hold back. Be detailed um, to say, I'm so sorry that I was disrespectful. I'm sorry that I made you feel this way. I know that I'm responsible for this, this, this. Lay it out. Don't be quaint. This isn't the time for quaintness, for I'm sorry for anything I might have done that could have offended you. It's not an effective apology. Be detailed. Be gentle. Guys, this isn't the time to be macho. I'm sorry, but a biblical man isn't macho. 
A biblical man is humbled before God. And it, it doesn't matter what it might look like. It matters what is inside of his heart. Remember Galatians 1, 6, 1 through 3, about being gentle. Don't be harsh. Like I said before, if you have to, get on your knees. This truly demonstrates the humility that hopefully is, is in your heart. Let there be no question whatsoever. Allow the truth of the forgiveness of Christ to rule in your heart. If you think, well, it's so hard. So hard to forgive them. Hasn't God forgiven you of so much more? Didn't Christ make the first step of unification and our relationship with him? And that first step, by the way, was so much harder than an apology. Because he wasn't apologizing. He was giving his own life. He was mocked. He had a thorn, a crown of thorns pushed onto his head with a mallet. He had the cat of nine tails, likely. Beating his back till he was, he was no longer recognizable. So that he might have fellowship with you. You won't forgive a brother? How dare you? Who among us today, when a, when a brother in Christ genuinely comes before you and asks for forgiveness, just say, I forgive you, absolutely. And give him a hug. Give him, I don't care, a holy kiss. I, I'm, embrace them. Bring back fellowship. This is... This is true discipleship. This is tr- being true son of God. Uh, if, you, if you can think of it, if you know the person, start with an endearment name. My dad calls me lots of different things. I'm not going to share all of them with you. But he'll, he'll call me sweetheart. He'll call me uh, buddy, he'll call me booger. But I, I, you know, and some of these things, you know, like, ugh, booger, whatever. But these things I know when he says them, he's being endearing. He loves me. If you don't like those, First John says, beloved, brethren, little children, whatever's appropriate, indicate in some way that you love them. And do it. And at this point, I just want to remind you one last time, you might be tempted to tell the other person everything that they have done wrong and demand an apology from them. Don't do that. Wait and see what God will do through your submission to Him. And remember to speak truth to them. At this point, they might be trying to deny something that they did. Uh... They might be stretching facts to put themselves in a better light. No pun intended. Uh, remind them that they have, uh, what they have to say, their opinion is important to you. 
That you want to be honest about the situation. And when the conversation is over, if they still don't, they don't come to a point of unification with you, if they don't apologize, pray for them and let love cover a multitude of sins. You are responsible for yourself in the eyes of God. You cannot change another person's heart. Only God can. This might mean that you suffer for Christ's sake. Do it anyway. That's okay. Paul counted it a blessing, an honor to suffer for Christ's sake. It's okay. Don't don't be considering yourself uh, better than them. Be very careful. At this time, you might be tempted to be proud. Look with me quickly in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't be the tax collector. Don't ruin your ministry through pride. Bear patiently. Bear lovingly. Find peace in the knowledge that you were obedient to God in every possible way. And love them in spite of their sinfulness, because God did. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, and we know that our hearts are infinitely wicked, and desperately so. We pray, Lord, that as we bring our hearts before you, that you would bring katagonosko, you would bring down knowledge, Wisdom that only comes from you concerning our hearts and our minds and our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would be working in us. We know that we are created for good works. Don't let our sin, don't let our sinfulness disqualify us from ministry. Don't let our sinfulness disqualify us from being effective in ministry to others and those around us. Lord, give us wonderful, beautiful fellowship, joyful fellowship in this church, among the believers, in our homes. Fellowship that can only be the result of the blood of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.